0: Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you. You know, last week uh, I talked about the Boyd family uh, vacations at the beach down in Florida. And that got me to thinking about uh, the beach and when Karen and I first met. And some of you know this story, some of you don't. But back when I was 19, I had uh, gone one Sunday afternoon after church to uh, Paradise Beach down in Indy Atlantic, Florida. and, And going to the beach was uh, one of my most favorite things to do, especially in the summer when school was out, especially uh, when all the girls from all the surrounding high schools would be out. And so on this particular day, I went to the beach to see who I could meet, if you catch my drift. And uh, I was walking along the boardwalk, and I noticed down uh, on the beach uh, a blanket of babes, that I had never seen before, so I had to figure out a way to meet them, and I noticed that right down in front of the blanket uh, that these young women were laying on, there were some kids building a sandcastle, and I thought to myself, well, all gals like guys who like kids, and so I decided to go down and help them build a sandcastle, because I figured when they got hot and they wanted to go down in the water and cool off, they'd have to walk right past me, then I could pick them off when they went by. And, and it worked, it, it worked. Karen gets up from the, blank, from the blanket and I'm watching her long, beautiful blonde hair and I wanna get my timing just right so that I stand up just as she's going by. So here she comes. I, I stand up, brush the sand off my knees and my hands and she looks at me right in the eyes and she says, great castle. And I'm like, great hair, you know, <laughs> and so... I follow her down into the water, asking her all kinds of questions. I follow her uh, all the way back to the blanket, and we start to get to know each other. Now, if Karen were here with me, she would tell you that she wasn't the first girl that I followed down into the water, (laughs) and uh, that's true, but as soon as I found out that she was 14, remember, I'm 19, she's 14, she did not look 14 in my defense, but anyway, as soon as I found out she was 14, I went back to building the castle with the kids, and then Karen came along, and we started dating after that, and we dated off and on through college, and we got married right out of college, and by the way, here's a picture of that day, August 12th, 1973, that's uh, me and some of the young ladies from the blanket, and the kids standing there, and then here is the great castle picture that uh, motivated us all that day. But anyway, (laughs) now I want to ask you a question. Do you remember how you felt when you first met the one that you would eventually marry? These are for uh, married people, of course, but uh, do you you remember that first love, the love you had for one another when your relationship began? Do you remember what that was like? Now hold that thought. We're going to come back to it a little bit later on. By the way, if this is your first time here, I want to extend a warm welcome to you. We're so glad that you've chosen to fight all the traffic to be with us this morning. And uh, if you attend here on a regular basis, one of the things that we want you to know about us is that most often on Sundays, we are studying and teaching our way through whole books of the Bible or long sections of Scripture. And last week, we began a study in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation— a sermon series that we've uh, titled, Seven, What the Spirit is Saying to the Churches. And we learned last week in chapter one that the apostle John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, one of his closest friends, he's now in his mid-90s, he's the last living apostle, and he's been exiled to an Alcatraz-like island about 60 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey because... Of his faithful preaching of the gospel, the Roman Caesar at that time was an evil, insecure man named Domitian, and Domitian had basically deified himself. He he uh, he claimed to be God, and he issued a decree that everyone had to confess Caesar is Lord and offer a pinch of incense in his name in a temple dedicated to his honor. Well, that wasn't something that a fully devoted follower of Jesus could do because. For if the followers of Jesus, there's only one Lord and God, and his name was Jesus. So they would boldly refute Domitian's claim by asserting that Jesus is Lord. And as a result, they were persecuted uh, for this. All across the empire, Christians were ostracized and ridiculed and beaten by their neighbors without consequence. Many of them lost their homes and businesses. Some were thrown in jail. Some lost their lives. Others like John were exiled to small islands in the Aegean Sea. And John's is on, he's exiled to Patmos. And one Sunday he's worshiping and Jesus shows up. I mean, he really shows up like like in person. And John sees and hears Jesus in all of his heavenly glory, something like what he had seen maybe back uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration with his friend Peter. And I I just have to read this to you again, because this vision of Jesus right here, as I said last week, this is the vision of Jesus um, that we need to carry with us every day. It should shape how we think about him and how we think about what's going on in our world, world today. But in Revelation 1.10, John said, it was the Lord's day. I was worshiping in the spirit. And suddenly behind me, I heard a loud voice that sounded like a trumpet blast. And and the voice said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven golden lampstands. And here, by the way, this was an actual lampstand that came from this time period out of the city of Ephesus. He's not talking about seven menorahs. He's talking about seven lampstands Like this, verse thirteen. And standing in the midst of the lampstands was some something someone like the son of man. He was wearing a, a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance and John said when I saw him I passed straight out I fell down like I was a dead man so here is Jesus the crucified risen glorified Jesus he shows up and Jesus tells John to write in a book what he's going to show him he says, and send it to these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, and Greenville. <laughs> Here's a map showing the location of the churches. So you see Patmos there in, in the middle in red. It's about 60 miles from Ephesus. And so uh, then you have, as you go around in kind of a circle, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, um, it was, most scholars consider this or think of, that this was a postal route. In other words, if a carrier was to take messages to these churches, he would leave Patmos by boat, land in Ephesus, and then proceed to deliver the mail, so to speak, in the order pictured here. And then from these churches, the book of what John had seen would have been copied and sent out to many other churches out in the outside, uh, outside the circle of these, of these churches here. And the book, this book that John is writing with seven messages, it comes not from John, but from Jesus himself. Jesus speaks to seven specific local congregations in the late first century, but we should also hear Jesus speaking to us. We should hear Jesus speaking to us at Fellowship Greenville today today as well as he's speaking to every other local church that professes his name. Now, if you're not already there, open your Bible and find your way to Revelation chapter 2. Paper digital, doesn't matter. You should always be looking into God's Word. As we turn the page from chapter 1 to chapter 2, you see that each of the seven letters, and actually, they're not really letters. The whole book is a letter, But they're not letters because there's nothing letter like them. They're actually seven sermons or seven messages. So each of these messages begins with the words, to the angel of the church, fill in the blank city, write. To the angel. Now, what is that all about? Jesus tells John to to write to the angel. now commentators debate on what or who the angel is here. And some say the angel refers to the senior pastor of the church, which is odd because churches were a plurality of leadership in that day, but, uh, or a prophet in each, uh, each of the churches. Some say that the angel was the church itself. In other words, church equals angel. But Revelation one twenty says that the lampstands were the angel. And so some says that, some people say they have no idea what Jesus means by angel, but it doesn't matter. Most agree that the angels are the guardian angels of these churches because, first of all, all through the rest of the book of Revelation, the word angel always refers to a heavenly being functioning as a heavenly messenger from God and or a heavenly, uh, heavenly being carrying out some purpose of God. Plus the fact there's biblical precedent. For God accomplishing his will and purposes in this world through heavenly beings. Like in the book of Daniel, we read about how God appointed angels over nations. So, why is it a stretch to think that one of the ways that God carries out his work with people and churches is through angels who are carrying forward God's work in the world and fighting battles, spiritual battles, behind the scenes on behalf of God's churches? God uses angels, heavenly beings, To serve and minister to human beings, and he also uses human beings to serve and minister to other human beings, which is pretty cool. Now uh, we need—that's enough said about that. We're warned against getting all caught up with angels, but suffice it to say that God accomplishes His plans and purposes in in a multifaceted way. He works through people. He works through the Holy Spirit. He works through angels as ministering spirits. And as we saw last week, and we see again this week, Jesus himself is actively involved walking in the middle of the churches as well. So God's work in the church is multifaceted. And all this underscores our summer sermon series, Church Matters. And we said then that the church matters because it matters to Jesus. And that is evidenced here by how much attention and emphasis Jesus places on these local churches, the ones that we see right here in Revelation 2 and 3. To the angel of the church in blank. That's how each of the seven sermons begins. And each letter ends in the same way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches And the point is, while each message is specifically addressed to what's going on in each local church, the Holy Spirit intends for all these messages to be read and understood and applied in all the churches for all time. So all seven messages were meant to be read together in each of the seven churches so that they would all hear the commendations and the corrections that Jesus gives to his church. So he begins in chapter two, verse one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And I think uh, Jesus begins with the message to the church in Ephesus, partly because it's the first uh, church, it's the first city that the mail carrier would reach after sailing from the island of Patmos. However, I think he starts with Ephesus mostly because uh, it was the largest and greatest city in the Roman province of Asia. Pergamon was the official capital of the province, but the church at Ephesus was one of the our Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the world in the first century. It was kind of the equivalent of a New York or a London or Paris in that day, a great financial center, a great uh, cultural center, a a, a cultic religious center of that day. And at the time of John, Ephesus had the greatest harbor in Asia. The city was at the end of a great spice and silk uh, route from the east and had a prominent marketplace. And in the first century, Ephesus was known for its Tremendous library, it's amphitheater, seated 10,000 people, and for a great sports arena where uh, the Knolls played on Sundays. Uh, By the way, we're not having Sunday night uh, church tonight. Not because of that, but because it's Labor Day. And so, if you know somebody who comes to the evening service, tell them to watch the Knolls instead. But anyway, um, it had a great temple devoted to the worship of Artemis, also known as Diana. And the temple was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, I say all that, and I could say a whole lot more. But because of all of this, Ephesus was considered to have strategic importance. It was the hub of Christian missionary focus. In fact, several well-known Christian leaders had ministered in Ephesus. Like the church was founded during a brief uh, visit there by the Apostle Paul, who left his friends Priscilla and Aquila there to nurture the young congregation. The Apollos, the great orator, preacher, communicator, Apollos was there for a time. Paul came back, spent two and a half years preaching and teaching in Ephesus, but then he ends up having to leave the city because his preaching put a huge dent in the idol-making business, there in the city. So Paul left Timothy in charge. Timothy was the pastor. Church tradition says that toward the end of the first century, Timothy was uh, martyred, murdered by the Romans. So after being released from exile, after uh, Domitian died, he was released. The apostle John returns to Ephesus to pastor the church, and that's where he wrote the fourth gospel. So by the time... Of Revelation's writing, Ephesus had become the center of the Christian movement. The center had moved from Jerusalem to Antioch in Syria to Ephesus, and it would later move to Rome. Now, there's one more fun fact about Ephesus and the Ephesian church, and that is one of its longtime members was Mary, the mother of Jesus having moved there with John, whom Jesus, from the cross, had asked to care for her. Now, I want you to think about this. What would it be like to be in a Christmas Eve service in the church of Ephesus with Mary? I mean, you don't have to get anybody to fill in for her part in the, in the manger play, you know. Wow. Uh, unbelievable church. Founded by the apostle Paul, nurtured by Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos and Timothy, pastored by John, home to Mary. Man, doesn't get any better than that. Now, in each of the seven messages, Jesus refers to himself using images from the vision in the first chapter. So they each each one begins with what you might call the Christ title, and here Jesus refers to himself as Him who holds seven stars in His right hands and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So, Jesus reiterates that part of his self-revealing from chapter one, but he makes it stronger. Um, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, in the initial vision, Jesus has the seven stars. Here, he's is holding the seven stars. In other words, they're his to have and to hold. They are his and he will never let them go. And in the initial vision, he's standing in the middle of the lampstands. Now we see him walking among the churches and holding and walking to note that he's actively involved. He's not looking down from above. He's not looking outside in. He's active. His power, holding stars, His presence, walking among, are real and personal. And he's actually walking around as a kind of a divine quality control inspector. Walking among the churches, monitoring and scrutinizing every corner of the church's life. And then we hear Jesus give us a report on the spiritual condition of this well-known, well-respected strategic congregation. He says, verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So he sees that in several very important ways that this church is a healthy church. He says, I know your deeds. I, he says, I see all and I know all about you. And Jesus says, I know your hard work. And that word emphasizes uh, strenuous and exhausting labor. They're not passive. They're not back row Baptist, pew sitting Christians. They are pushing themselves to advance God's work in the world. And they're willing to pay the price of commitment here. Jesus says, I know your perseverance. That's another strong word. This word emphasizes an inner attitude of long suffering, of patiently enduring hardship, which was a real thing for them, as I said. They were resisting the pressure of the emperor cult, not bowing their knee to Caesar as God. They were refusing to participate in the idolatrous worship of Artemis. They were patiently accepting the consequences for all this. Ridicule and rejection by friends, contempt of city leaders, loss of customers, boycotted by the business community. And Jesus says, I see you. I know you. You've persevered and you've endured hardship for my name's sake. And you haven't given in and you haven't given up. He says, I know you can't tolerate evil people. Meaning, the Ephes- these Ephesian disciples were committed to purity of life and purity of doctrine. They were, they were not settling for the easy way of indifference or compromise in matters of morality and ethics. Anything that even smelled like false doctrine or false living, they took care of immediately. Well, how did they do that? Well, Jesus says, I know that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them false. So apparently, some self-appointed apostles had come to Ephesus with their spiritually enlightened teaching. In verse six, Jesus calls some of them Nicolaitans. And who they are and what they they taught, We, we don't know for sure. We'll look at that when we get to the church in Pergamum. But the point for now is that the Ephesian church was committed to truth, committed to orthodoxy to knowing and defending the truth the faith once and for all delivered to the saints they had taken the apostle paul's caution seriously when about 40 years earlier he told the church at ephesus acts 20 be on your guard and guard be on guard for yourselves and for the flock of god because savage wolves will come in among you speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them so be on the alert and they had been on the alert and they were still on the alert and they were carefully and thoughtfully tested the spirit said john exhorted them in his first letter and they guarded the gospel as paul told timothy to do they were discerning people, measuring everything they heard and read against the truth of the gospel and the teaching of Jesus, and Jesus commends them for that. Now, really, in, in some ways, Jesus' words of commendation are so strong here, it leaves us wondering if anything could be wrong in this church. I mean, I mean, they were orthodox in their faith, they were energetic in their service, they were patient in their suffering. I mean, what could be wrong? There are no... Certainly, there are no perfect churches, but this one seems pretty close. Well, he has a complaint in verse 4. There's something wrong, terribly wrong. He says, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Now, remember Jesus. He knows what's happening on the surface. He knows what's happening underneath. He knows what's going on in our hearts. He sees all the activity, but he also sees that they are lacking affection. He sees that they have a a strong commitment to truth. He sees how they're bearing up under all kinds of attacks from the evil one and how they're not growing weary. But Jesus says to the church, you're flawed at the center. When Jesus gives the church its report card, he gives them five or six A's and a big fat D. The church has everything except the one thing that Jesus wants most, I have this against you, he says, you've left your first love. So what is this first love that's gone missing? Well, you know, first love is the love that's experienced between two people when they when they first fall in love. Like back uh, when Karen and I uh, first met and we were dating, and this, I know this is no doubt true of many of you as well, but back in the Paradise Beach days and in our early college days, I mean, we wanted to be with each other all the time. We liked doing as many things as we could t- together as possible. We even had a little, uh, we made uh, puka shell necklaces and sold them to surf shops down there. And, uh, and we like doing big things and small things uh, for each other that expressed our love for one another. Now, I, lo- I did learn early on that uh, not to bring Karen candy or flowers. Like in her mind... Candy is uh, added pounds, and flowers die, so what's the point? And I discovered that she was more of a gold, silver, precious stones kind of uh, woman. And, uh, but she also, when I couldn't afford any of that, uh, you know, it was like uh, acts of service is her love language anyway. But we had loving feelings because we were doing the things that lovers do for one another. And by the way, doing loving things creates loving feelings. Doing loving actions creates loving affections. Now, the same thing was probably true of of many of you when you first came to put your faith in Christ. I mean, for me, there was something in my teenage years about the excitement and the uh, enthusiasm and the emotion and the feeling that I had when I came to understand what a personal relationship with Jesus was all about. But, you know, those kind of things fade over time. Uh, I mean, remember how at first you, 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 you loved reading Scripture. Nobody had to tell you to have a quiet time. You loved reading Scripture. You loved praying. You weren't ashamed to talk about Jesus with your friends. You might have even taken your Bible to school uh, with all the rest of your books as a witness to others. You wanted to be with your Christian friends as much as possible. And in those fir- days of first love, your believing was grounded in loving. And your doing flowed out of your loving. And you even endured being rejected by former friends, which hurt, but your love for Jesus carried you through all of that. But it's not an uncommon thing to have that first love slip away as time goes by. Now, the Ephesian congregation was now 40, 50 years old, and most of that first generation of Christ followers had died off and others had taken their place But it's interesting in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says that the Ephesians' faith and their love was well known, so well known that he continually gave thanks for them. And their commitment to defending the faith remained strong. Their refusal to not compromise uh, the truth or their morals remained strong. They wouldn't tolerate false teaching or false living of any kind. In fact, According to the letter written to the Ephesians, not long after this, by Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, the report that had reached him was that the church in Ephesus was so well taught in the gospel that no unorthodox sect could gain a hearing among its members. And yet Jesus says, I have this against you. What's happened to the love that used to characterize your lives, and our relationship. Theirs was a loveless orthodoxy. It's shocking, it's sobering to think that you can believe all the right things and you can be doing all the right things and you can be enduring all kinds of ridicule and rejection because of your faith in Jesus, but you still might hear Jesus say, I have this against you. What's happened to the love that used to be the foundation of all your believing and doing? I I talked about this a couple weeks ago. I I believe the loss of love for Jesus and the people that Jesus loves is the number one reason why non-believers today describe the church as judgmental and mean-spirited. I mean, think about that. How can that be our brand when Jesus says that love should be our brand? Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's our brand. And Jesus went on to say in another place, he said, warning his followers about a coming time when they would face two dangers. He said many prophets, false prophets, would appear and deceive many people. And then he said, the love of many will grow cold. And here, many years later, Jesus commends the Ephesian congregation for how they're responding very well to the first of those dangers, not tolerating false teachers, but he reprimands them for their love growing cold. I got this against you. What's happened to our relationship? And I take it that this faded first love, I take it that it had an upward dimension to it, love for God. It had an inward dimension to it, love for brothers and sisters in Christ. And it had an outward dimension to it, love for the lost that Jesus loves. You see, it's possible for us to to love the truth of Jesus but have a lukewarm love for Jesus, who is the truth. It's possible to love the truth of Jesus but have very little love for the people of Jesus because they're annoying. They don't all believe like me. It's possible to love the truth that people in darkness So desperately need to hear, but have little to no love for the people themselves. You see, there can be several things in a church that cause first love to fade. I'll give you three of them. Number one, it's easy for people who see themselves in a battle for truth to be unloving. It's easy for people who see themselves first and foremost in a battle for truth to be unloving. Jesus came full of grace and truth. Now, some of us are truth people, and some of us are, are grace people, and truth people see the Bible like a gun full of bullets called verses, and you're always, you always have one in the chamber, and the minute someone says something that doesn't square with Scripture, bang, 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 and Jesus says, good verses, you hit the bullseye, but that person didn't feel loved, and they're laying there bleeding. They didn't feel any love or kindness that would have led them to repentance. Instead, you crushed them with shame and guilt and condemnation. And Jesus is saying, I want truth to be wrapped in grace. I want want grace to be wrapped in truth. You see, it's easy. uh, so, So it's easy for people who see themselves in this battle for truth, which we are in. But it's easy. To be unloving. It's also easy for the business of a church as large as ours to push love to the back seat. When a church like ours is growing, it becomes more and more necessary to have systems to manage everything. You got to have good business practices. And also, in our day, all kinds of technology to keep things running smoothly and uh, efficiently. And and none of those things are necessarily uh, bad in and of themselves. But it's easy for the business of a church like ours to push love to the back seat. Easy for a church like ours to run so officially, put uh, put so much emphasis on efficiency that it feels more like a business than uh, uh, an organization, than an organism, a living organism, a community of faith. Now, I say that, but I'm very thankful that that is not the case with us is something we talk about continually. But I mention it here because the danger of business and busyness overshadowing love is always present. The danger always exists and we need to be we need to guard against that creeping in to the church every bit as much as guarding against false teaching creeping in. Third, it's easy for the hardships we face in life to occupy so much of our attention that our love can grow cold. Easy for the hardships we face in life to occupy so much of our attention that our love can grow cold. It's easy, it's easy for what we see as hardships in this country, politically and socially, to cause our love to grow cold. Because our fear... Uh, What might happen can cause our hearts to become calloused and hard. It's easy for the hardships of daily life, health issues and financial issues and relational conflict. It's easy for all kinds of troubles and trials to cause our love to grow cold. uh, I mean, we, we still come to church. We sing worship songs and serve here and there. And we're in small groups and we give to the church. But it's possible to do all those things, and, and our love for Jesus, and our love for the, uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and our love for the mission of Jesus, it can, grow, it can grow cold. You follow me here. It's easy for an unswerving commitment to the truth to eclipse love. It is easy for church activity and church business and efficiency to eclipse love. It is easy for the hardships that beat the life out of you to eclipse love and Jesus is saying you can believe all the right things and you can be doing all the right things and you can even be enduring hardship for my name's sake you can be doing all that but he might still say I got this one thing that we really need to talk about and that is what's happened to your love um it's interesting. I'll give you something I didn't give the first service. Um, Jerome was a fourth century church leader, and in his commentary on Galatians, he writes this The blessed John the Evangelist lived in Ephesus until extreme old age. His disciples could barely carry him to church, and he could not muster the voice to speak many words. During individual gatherings, he usually said nothing but, little children love one another. The disciples and brothers in attendance, annoyed because they always heard the same sermon, finally said, teacher, why do you always say this? And he replied with a line worthy of John, because it's the Lord's commandment. And if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. Jesus says, all you're believing and all you're doing has to be rooted in loving God and loving others. So if you realize maybe that your love has faded, then what do you do? And I love this about Jesus. He doesn't just rebuke a church for what they're doing wrong and then leave them to figure out uh, how to fix the mess they're in. He gives them some clear action steps to set things right. In verse five, Jesus says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen... Repent and do the works you did at first. Now, the first step in Jesus' three-step recovery program is remember. Remembering something from the past can change how we act in the present. We see this um, in Jesus' well-known parable of the prodigal son. I mean, after partying hard and, and ultimately losing all his money and friends, the prodigal son uh, is so hungry that he's ready to eat pig slop but then his memory kicks in and he remembers the great home-cooked meals his mama used to make and he remembers the comforts of his home most of all he remembers the love of his father and in remembering these things he decides to go back home and in the same way Jesus calls the Ephesians church to let their memory kick in. They need to remember the tangible acts of love, kindness, compassion, empathy that characterize their life together in the past. He wants them to remember those things and make a mid-course correction, which leads to the second step in their REGEN program, and that is to repent, which simply means repent is a a change of mind that brings about a change in direction. Jesus' call to repentance is a call for them to confess that they had gotten off track and then to resolve by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to make whatever needed changes needs to be made. The third step is do or maybe redo. Christ commands, do the works you did at first. Go back to the beginning. Remember what first love was like. Repent of how you've let that love slip away and redo the works you did at first in the way you did them at first. Or think of this way, Jesus may very well be saying, keep doing what you're doing now. Keep defending the truth. Remain true to gospel living. Continue to refuse to give up or give in in the face of opposition, but make sure, make sure that all you're believing and all you're doing and all you're persevering is, met, is motivated and permeated with love. Remember, repent, redo, or else, verse 5, if you don't listen to me, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, to the Lord, forsaking their first love was no small thing, and he's prepared to close the church down because it's so important. Because the light that they're to have is the light of the love of Jesus and if that's gone, what's the point in keeping the doors open? He's prepared to pull the plug on our lampstand if we lose our first love of God and people. And sadly, that's exactly what happened in the 5th century. The Ephesian church died out, and nothing remains of the church in Ephesus today. Of course, that's the last thing that Jesus wants to do is to close a church and remove its lampstand, remove its light, but his strong words here were meant to get their attention, to draw them back to the faithful of they had once known and lived. These, this consequence is a warning. But what you need to hear here is that in the Bible, a warning is an act of grace. It's God's way of saying, don't keep going that way. You don't want to keep going that way. Go this way. It's a way of God is saying, I haven't given up on you. Don't give up on me. Change your mind and change your direction. That's what he's, that's, and he's also saying here, you don't have to compromise truth in order to love people who reject the truth. Even verse 6 there where it says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus makes a distinction between their works. He doesn't say Hate them, he says, their works. Hate their truth-twisting, false teaching. Hate their moral compromising. But love them with the love of Jesus. Verse 7. Here's the word of God to the people of God. He says in verse 7, Anyone who has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Jesus concludes with a positive consequence. Here's what happens if you take my warning seriously, seriously enough to let it change your life. He says, to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now, remember, Jesus is addressing the whole Ephesian church, which is full of believing people, saved people. They're committed to the truth, they serve the Lord with diligence, They're enduring hardship for his name's sake. They had been known for their love, but more recently their love had faded and they need to get that foundation of love back in place again. But the point is these are saved people. So when Jesus says, let those who have ears to hear and to those who overcome, he is not talking about eternal salvation here. He's talking about rewards. He's saying only those who hear and heed my call will be able to live a victorious life for, for me and re- here and now and receive my promised reward in the future. And here specifically, Jesus promises the reward to reward faithful overcomers by giving them the privilege to eat from the tree of life, which is in the middle of the paradise of God. Again, this is not a metaphor for eternal salvation, for All who believe this is a metaphor for some kind of special reward for those who faithfully live out the truth and grace way of Jesus until he returns. The scriptures clearly teach that all believers will be in heaven, but not all believers will experience the same degree of rewards in heaven. Look at Jesus' parable in Luke 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10 through 15, Revelation 22, 12. So, what's the reward? The tree of life takes us all the way back to the garden, uh, the original paradise of God that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2, where Adam and Eve were allowed to eat from any tree in the garden, including the tree of life. And it was in, that was one of the ways they invo- enjoyed special fellowship with God. And then at the end of the book of Revelation, the tree of life comes back, and it's described as bearing 12 kinds of fruit, one for each month, with leaves that bring healing to the nations. Again, another way of a metaphor for fellowship, special fellowship with God. And there may be something else that ties in here, something that comes right out of Ephesus. In Greek mythology, the spruce tree was dedicated to Artemis, the goddess of of the moon and hunting and nature And the protector of women. And the Greeks suggested that the enduring spruce tree represented constant, abundant life. It was labeled the tree of birth or the tree of life because its scented evergreen needles signified uh, resilience and strength. This is is the reason the tree is associated with Artemis, especially in coins from this time. You see the deer, which represents the hunt in the wilderness, and you see the tree in the background as a symbol or as a metaphor for renewal and resilience, qualities that the goddess Artemis was to have prized above all others. So Jesus may be saying here, you've heard it said, that Artemis rewards her faithful followers with renewal and re- resilience and strength from her tree. Jesus is saying, not true, but if you follow me faithfully, if you follow, if you faithfully follow my way of truth and love, I will reward you with being able to eat the fruit of the tree of life in my kingdom. Something like I will reward you... Um, reward you with you being able to eat a special meal, a fellowship meal with me in the kingdom of God, something like that. It is a, whatever it is, it is a, it is a reward that we would want. So I want you to think about this. Here you are, you came to church today. Here I am, I'm up here uh, standing before you reading this ancient letter, but I really think that we're supposed to hear this letter something like this. As if I were to say to you, now I know this is really hard to believe. I can't believe it myself, but somehow, someway, I have here a letter from Jesus. You know, an actual message from Jesus. It's a letter from him. We know it's from him because it's written in all red ink. So here's what Jesus says to us as his church. Here's what Jesus says to us as his followers. And then I read to you a message like this. Fellowship Greenville, Charlie Boyd. I know all the things you do. I see how hard you work serving me and you don't quit. I know how you guard against the evil of the world creeping into your congregation. I see how you guard, uh, how you have examined the teachings of those who claim to be speaking for me, but they're really not. Uh, I, I, I have seen how you can discern the Truth from the lies of your culture, and I see how you've patiently endured all kinds of hardships for my name's sake. Well done, well done. But I have, um, I have this one, this one area, uh, and really, it's kind of the biggest area. Um, you don't love me or each other like you did at first. And that really has to change. You need to admit it. You need to repent of it. You need, with my help and the Holy Spirit's help, to make whatever changes you need to be made, that need to be made in order to ensure love is the strong foundation for all you believe and teach and do. Listen to me, he says, because if you refuse to hear me, there will be a day when I'll shut you down. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to you. It's the Spirit that enables you to hear these things. And it's the Spirit who will guide you to make things right with me again. So what do you do with a message like that? When you think about your life, is Jesus speaking in some way to you? Is there some area where it's more duty than delight. I like the question that Sam Storms has in his devotional commentary on the seven churches. He says, how does your knowledge of God's knowledge of you change you? How does your knowledge of God's knowledge of you change you? That's a great question, isn't it? Anyone has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are this involved in, in your local churches, that you, you're not some off on some far-flung corner of the galaxy looking down You're not outside the walls looking in, but you're right here with us today. You are as present here today as every man, woman, student here. You're as real as we all are real. And you're walking among us. And you're challenging us to learn from this message to the church in Ephesus. I don't know what that means for each and every one of us, but Spirit, you do. I know how you've poked your finger at me. I know how you pointed out things in my life where my love has faded. Continue your work in us, Holy Spirit, to make us to be the people and, and a church that can truly be a light to our community, to be a church with a brand that is so recognizable and that brand being they love one another, they love people who don't know Jesus yet. And as we leave this building today, may that be what we take with us in Jesus' name, amen.